trailer music composer Michael Christian, better known as MCR, has had his music placed in all kinds of trailers, TV shows, and commercials. Having pitched on over 300 projects per year, we're going to talk about whether he'd recommend that for new composers and what other advice he has for those getting started. Welcome to the Soundtrack.academy podcast, bringing you advice on soundtrack composition and production, as well as insights into the media music industry. Each week, I talk with a guest working in media music to discuss how they got started, their creative process, and other knowledge they've gained from their experiences. For links, show notes, and to see all of my previous guests, visit soundtrack.academy slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite platform. And if you enjoy the show, please also leave me a review. It not only helps me to convince these wonderful guests to join me, but also helps other people find the show too. Michael has an extensive background in music. In the late 70s, he had a recording contract with Warner Brothers. He then went on to set up his own indie record label before Napster made him realize where the future of music was heading and he made the jump to synchronization. In our interview, we talk about how developing technology has and continues to disrupt and change the industry in both good and bad ways. The inner workings of trailer music composition, including sync fees and writer's shares how even just listening without analysis can still help you improve as a composer, and the fundamental mixing techniques that composers need to learn. All that and more coming right up. Let's get on with the show. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, Johnny. Nice to be here. Real privilege. Thank you for asking me to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Can we start with a little bit about um, your background, what you do? Uh, what I do, uh, background is quite, uh, extensive. What I do <laughs> presently is I work mostly, um, mostly uh, entirely in synchronization. So I specialize in trailer music, uh, of which I do a few albums every year. And I work for a few companies that uh, pitch, uh, uh, specifically trailer music. Um, I do some custom trailer work and, uh, but a lot of it is just basic, uh, pitching. Um, I also do a lot of uh, TV commercial work, uh, which I pitch for, and uh, some TV underscore work for uh, uh, various TV programs. That's basically what I'm involved in these days. Uh, My background, um, it's quite extensive. I'm not a young guy, so (laughs) I've been been around for a long time. I started in the music business when I was a kid, um, about 16, 17. even earlier. And, um, I, uh, I worked getting in those days, it was all about getting a recording contract. Uh, so I did a lot of gigging and playing and writing and trying to get into studios and finally had a recording contract with Warner brothers in the uh, late seventies, early eighties. But, um, that didn't pan out very well as a lot of those contracts did, but it was a good, it was a great learning experience, uh, for me. And then I went from that into production myself and learned really the tools of the trade, uh, worked in 24 track. I actually went the backwards route. A lot of guys went from four track to eight, then to 16, then to 24. I went from 24 to eight to four track. (laughs) Um, um, And as I started taking on more and more of it myself and doing the work myself, um, obviously I was always looking for solutions to uh, be able to uh, manage uh, a lot of the work myself without having to engage others or a large studio. Uh, in those days, studios cost a lot of money. 
Um, it was quite normal to be paying 300 to $500 an hour to wow. rent the studio. So yeah. And, uh, you know, who could afford that? Right. Yeah. So basically, uh, I remember when the Macs first came out, I bought my first Mac in 1984 or 85. I bought one of those little boxes, the little Mac SEs. <laughs> and, uh, it was expensive at the time. I, uh, if I remember correctly, I think it was over $3,000, but I kind of saw the writing on the wall and I felt, well, here's a tool that's really going to help me, uh, become autonomous not having to be tied down to a lot of things. So I remember buying the Mac and it came with uh, 80, 80 megabytes of memory. <laughs> yeah. And it had uh, a two, two megabytes of RAM and the option to have two more. And I remember telling the, uh, the, the uh, store clerk, I said, I'll take the, uh, the other two megabytes of memory. And he looked at me and he says, why in heaven's name would you want to have four megabytes of memory? What are you going to use all that for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. You know, today, I mean, operating systems are two gigabytes. Yeah. But in those days, the operating system was 680K. Yeah. You know? And uh, so I started doing my first recording. I started with Digital Performer 1.0. I mean, the first product. And I did a pile of MIDI work, started learning MIDI and getting into it and did a lot of different productions with that one computer for quite a few years until I upgraded. So then uh, I had a, I started a, a, um, uh, a, an indie label because I had a lot of friends that were looking to be recorded and I thought they were really excellent uh, artists with great, uh, great uh, songs and they were just being ignored. You know, the industry was just starting to fracture and come apart and it was getting increasingly difficult to get any kind of traction. Uh, so I started my own indie label, which actually still exists, but, um, and uh, recorded a number of different artists, uh, in the kind of folk R and B field. And, um, but it was basically a labor of love. It was just impossible to get anything going. And it was at the same time, that was about the same time when Napster hit, that was probably one of the most disruptive technologies. Uh, I, you know, it's, it just changed the landscape irreversibly. And from that point on, of course, uh, as you well know, uh, music became free. And, yeah. um, you know, people don't realize a younger generation that's grown up always with that in place doesn't understand that that wasn't always the case. You know, um, there, was a, there was a good living to be made in those days from creating albums, selling them to your audience, uh, there were a lot of guys, myself included, that would make a small, you know, we made a decent living selling 40,000 records a year of, uh, you know, niche, niche products, niche things. Uh, but that all vanished with Napster. And, uh, you know, basically you sell, you sold one CD and that was it. Yeah. After that, uh, there were no more, no more sales. Right. So, and I think that just changed the landscape of how, how, uh, <clears throat> how music was to be how music was going to be handled. And, and I guess a lot of people didn't, you know, there's always that legacy, those legacy people who are hanging on to what was trying to, to, to legislate it, which is what happened. You know, they legislated Napster out of existence, but it's like trying to kill a cockroach, right? Yeah. You kill one <laughs> and you got 10,000 more, right? Yeah, so it yeah. just, it was inevitable. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall on that about maybe 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. 
And I started moving over and looking at what, where, where is the only opportunity for a person still to make some money or living in music? And it was basically in synchronization. So I started moving into that field. And that was a big learning process because going from production and you know recording songs and uh, overdubs and all that stuff, live recording, and going into the whole concept of writing for video, film, uh, commercials is a completely different uh, animal, you know. And there's a, there's a big learning curve that one has to one has to go through to understand how to write to picture and what that means, how to support uh, uh, what's on screen, not detract from it, you know. Um, how to contribute to what is being attempted with, let's say, a commercial, for example, and how to write to a brief, right? So yeah. I spent a f- quite a few years learning that, and um, and that's what I do now. So that's kind of, in a, in a nutshell, it's been my trajectory for the past bunch of years. What type of music was your original recording contract in? What, how, what music did you start off in? Well, that's the interesting thing. So I was—I've been on both sides of the uh, both sides of the equation. I was an artist in those days, so I was writing my own songs, original stuff, which I did since I since I've been a kid, and it was mostly kind of that singer songwriter style. I mean, maybe you know Elton John, that kind of thing was you know very popular in the seventies, and I—that I, was sort of my style. I was kind of writing my own songs, you know. I played piano, not very well, but I played some piano. <laughs> I'm a guitarist, actually, okay. by a trade. Yeah, but uh, I played some, you know, guitar, piano, and uh, I wrote, you know, just kept writing songs. And in those days, that's what you did, right? You tried to write songs every week. You wrote a few songs, and then, you know, you, you worked on them, and you tried to make them better, and you hoped somebody liked them, and you could do a demo, and if they liked the demo, then somebody would you know, spit out some money, maybe to do a master and so on, right? That's, that was the game in those days. Yeah. And, it, you know, the recording contracts in those days were, were not bad. I mean, even, a, even an unknown like myself, I mean, there was still a significant upfront advance that was available. It was not, it was routine in those days to be getting, oh, you know, 50, 70, 80,000 advance, uh, dollars advance, even more, you know, I've heard of guys getting more. Um, and that was advance money. Now, okay. Of course that all came off your back end, right? That's, (laughs) that was the, you know, you, you, you have that advance money. Yeehaw. But I mean, at the end, you still ended up paying for it out of your own profits, right? Yeah. Got paid back with, with interest and all the other stuff. (laughs) Right. I mean, the the game was always, the, the game has always been, um, how would I say, you know, it's like, you know, in gambling, when you see the house always wins, right? <laughs> uh, the record companies always won because the game was always geared against the artist, uh, regardless of what people think, you know, and, 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 you know, when you look at those few artists and some were very, did very well, some did were successful, made millions of dollars, but generally they had somebody who helped them through all of that business procedural stuff. And most artists don't like business, right? Because we feel it detracts from our creativity and it's just something we're not really, we don't really enjoy doing. Um, and so, you know, you, uh, there are, there were very, there were very, not all, I mean, some were very, very good, good companies, but many were unscrupulous yeah. and would take advantage of that, right? So it's quite, uh, there's quite a lot of great artists out there, even today, who don't own their masters, who don't own their music who make almost 
pennies, if if anything at all, off of their own music. Yeah, yeah. It's it's owned by somebody else, right? Well, I mean, it's funny because that kind of is is happening again today, you know, with the uh, production libraries and with the different, um, you know, the different uh, ways that a person can have their music published nowadays. That mentality hasn't changed. Yeah, there's been some big shifts in even how even how production libraries are splitting fees and royalties now as well, aren't there? Yeah, I mean the basic production library deal is, a, which is probably the, the 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 standard one across the board, and you know most people are happy to get that is fifty fifty. In other words, fifty fifty of what's left. They take a hundred percent of the publishing because their claim is they need that to be able to negotiate your music with. Uh, let's say, uh, uh, you know, a film or with a, um, with a, an agency, because the agency wants some of that money too. So they take 100% of your publishing, okay? And then they split the other, uh, uh, all, all, all upfront fees, you know? They'll take 50-50 of that. And if you're lucky, if you have a good contract, then you keep 100% of your writer's share. Yeah. So that's a good one. But I'm hearing now a lot of guys that they're not even getting that anymore. Yeah. That even the co- companies are starting to encroach on the writer fees and wanting a piece of that too, you know? And it just gets, it gets to the point where, you know, uh, the composer is getting nickel and dimed to death, you know, yeah. in my viewpoint. And uh, I mean, it really hurts when you get a, you know, you, you get you get a nice, you get a nice payout on something, right? Uh, like recently, a few that I got uh, for some of the big trailers that I was a, I, I snagged last year, and then you look at the fee, and then you realize that's only half the money. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, the other half somebody else got. Yeah. And what did they do for that? I'm I'm not saying there isn't. There is work that's done, and I'm not the one that's hustling the stuff, and I'm not running around trying to. You know, I don't do have to do all the metadata and all the stuff that's involved in getting that stuff out. But still, you look at it and you say, wow, you know. Um, so the only upside to all of that is that your, your publisher, if he's engaged with your music to that point, has as much skin in the game. So yeah. it's in his interest. It's in his interest, too, to push it, you know. Of so, course. Right? You know, if you're making 20000 and he's also looking for that other 20000 right? Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the only advantage, because then he's going to hustle for you. And that's okay, right? But um, but I'm seeing even that's disappearing now. Even guys are starting to to lose that. So I don't know where it's all going to end up, but there it is at the present time, right? Yeah, yeah. With your with the trailer syncs that you, that you get, do you find they have much um, much of a lifetime, or is it is the majority of the fee, or are there any royalties and writer shares that come through later from them as well? There's almost no royalties from trailers at all. That's why the upfront fees are so big, sure. you know, well, big. I mean, they have to negotiate upfront because that's pretty much the only money you're going to see. Possibly there are, there is some royal, there are some royalties that are available, uh, if you, especially if it gets theatrical releases, you know, in theaters, uh, your trailer. But uh, by and large, there's no more money after that. That's the way the trailer world works. So you... You want to make sure that your publisher negotiates a good fee. And that's why it's so important to have a good publisher, to have a good, uh, you know, a good team yeah. that's working on your, with you on your stuff. Because if not, uh, I mean, listen, you know, it can be pennies to the dollar, right? I mean, you don't, and, and the fees are good. I mean, and it also depends too on the film, right? There's small films, there's medium, and there's big films. 
Sure. You know, really, really small films, indie films and all that have practically no budget for advertising. So trailer money is going to be really next, ne next to nothing. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, you get into a medium film. <clears throat> um, I, I have a few of those, which I'm, I'm happy to get. And then on the average around the seven to $10,000 mark, that's what I get. So, you know, double that, right. With the fee is, and then there's the big films, right. Or the big uh, shows that, uh, it can be significantly more, you know, I mean, I've heard of people getting on some of the big Disney or the Marvel films, you know, you, you can, you can easily get up in the 50, 60,000, 80,000 range. Of course, that's always split with your publisher, right? Yeah. So, yeah. But, um, but yeah, you know, you get a couple of those a year, pretty good. Yeah. You know, you're, yeah. You know you're, you're living, right? Yeah. But it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, uh, you're not going to get rich doing this. And that's, that can't be the motivation why you get into this business, you know? I mean, for me, it's because I did this all my life pretty much, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I can't imagine myself doing something else. And at this point in my life, you know, I have so much under my belt. I got all this experience and, you know, knowledge that I've accumulated. Um, you know, <clears throat> I want to put that to use. And I think that that gives me a bit of an advantage, but when you're, if you're a young guy starting out now, you know, um, I don't know. <laughs> You know, I yeah. hope you have a good, I hope you have a good day job, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sidestepping a little bit. Um, your background, as you said, uh, was singer-songwriter. And it's, if I'm, if I've understood correctly, you, you didn't go through sort of formal music training. You kind of picked things up as you went along. Yeah, that was the, that was the style in those days. I mean, I have some formal training, but, um, you know, I was, I was first generation, we're a first genera generation immigrant family. And of course there was no money sure. to go to conservatory. I would very much have liked to have done that, but it wasn't the, there was no opportunity for it. I had some violin training when I was a kid. Mostly I learned to play the guitar, picked it up. And then I took some courses uh, in jazz improvisation. I played a lot of, I played a lot of fusion jazz back in the mid seventies. Oh, cool. And that was, that was pretty, yeah, it was pretty uh, good stuff. Oh, and it was also very demanding, right? You really had to learn how yeah. to count and right. You know, some of that stuff, very intricate, you know, yeah. to this day. That would have been like uh, Pistorius kind of time and, and, and stuff, wouldn't it? Oh yeah. You know, or Gentle Giant. I don't know yeah. if you remember that band. I yeah. mean, these guys, I still listen to them. I'm like, they're absolutely awesome. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's just inc incredible how they play all that stuff live, you know, yeah. and it's just, or, you know, John McLaughlin, one of my all-time favorite guitar players. And um, these, these guys had serious chops, right? Yeah. So, you know, that, I, I, you know, I did learn some things there, but it's funny now going into the orchestral world, which I've kind of been working in, well, let me call it the false orchestral world because <laughs> I don't work. I don't work with orchestras. I work with orchestral libraries a lot of times. Uh, I can see the gaps in my knowledge, right? Okay. Um, that some of the facility isn't there. But then on the other hand, you know, I've also started to realize that everybody has skills and anything can be hired in, right? Yeah. So if I need an orchestrator, I'm not an orchestrator. I understand orchestration, but I'm not an orchestrator. So I'll hire an orchestrator. You know, I know a couple of good guys. I pay these guys a few hundred dollars to, to knock out an orchestration for me. And they do it, you know, they understand how to place everything and where things should go and movement and so on and so forth. Um, so, I mean, I don't see it as a liability per se, 
you know. But uh, I think the most important kind of knowledge that you can get is understanding of music itself. And uh, I have a very varied uh, background in music. So very briefly, I started off, well, I was born in Austria in Europe and uh, lived in a small village. And uh, basically every night, every night without fail, my father was a huge music buff. He had a large collection of operas and the, you know, the German composers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, uh, you know, Brahms, Schumann, Schubert, that, that, that ilk. Uh, he never touched the moderns, but those, that was, was <laughs> his favorites. And uh, I grew up listening to all that stuff, right? So, so I, I, had, the, I had the sound of a, uh, an orchestra in my ear all the time, right? By the time I was 10, 12 years old, I knew all of those pieces, all those melodies, I didn't exactly know who did what. I couldn't put my name, uh, finger on it, but I knew them. They were familiar to me, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, then I moved into folk, uh, folk rock and, you know, the stuff I was writing and singing, um, you know, pop, uh, stuff. And, uh, then I, yeah, I moved into uh, the jazz field, as I mentioned to you, right? Fusion jazz, played a bit of that and, you know, tried my hand at writing some jazz pieces. Um, and uh, had a little bit of success with that too. So all of that, you know, you get this varied background. I also got studied and got really involved with Indian music, you know, ragas and stuff like that, because I love the sonorities. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, you have, you have a lifetime or, you know, you have a, a, a number of decades of this kind of background and experience that it gives you something today. I, I look at it and it gives me something to draw from, right? So I hear things and I say, well, I know where that's coming from. You know, I can understand where that's coming from. I understand where it's going, right? Yeah. You know, and um, it's funny because uh, not too long ago, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. There's a group called uh, Ravel. It's kind of a group of composers that gets together on a, on a monthly basis. There's chapters uh, all over the world. There's one in London. I think there's one in Prague too. Uh, there's definitely, I know there's one in LA and there's one here in Toronto where I live. And uh, uh, this, I go periodically to their get-togethers. It's kind of fun hanging around all these composers and these guys from the symphony and so on. And a lot of them are even older than me. So just to show you the, the depth of experience <laughs> you have there, right? Yeah. And I, I, I feel very intimidated in there because these guys are all they do score study and I'm trying to follow along. And I mean, I can read, but it's very, very painful, right? Sure. Uh, but uh, they invited me to give them a presentation on uh, on trailers. You know, what's a trailer? How do you do a trailer? And uh, what are the different trailer styles and so on and so forth, which I did. And I had some examples and this and that. And when it was all over, um, I talked to the head guy, who's also himself a very good composer and uh, an arranger. And I said to him, yeah, you know, I got to tell you, I said, I feel a little bit shy playing my music here because my trailers, they just seem so, you know, uh, inconsequential compared to, you know, when you guys are studying Ravel or you're you're studying these great scores, you know, Yeah. which which I'm very well familiar with because I love listening to that music. And uh, he said, no, 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 not at all. He says, it's funny. He says, I was listening and he says, you have an intrinsic sense of where things need to go. Like he said, he mentioned a couple of things, you know, you follow this by that instrument and you double this up with that instrument. And he says, it's, it's exactly what I would have done. <laughs> and, I, and I thought about that later. I said, well, why, you know? And I think it all harkens back to the fact that I just grew up listening 
to so much of that kind of music, you know, orchestral music, that it's kind of in my brain. It's sort of a palette that's there that uh, I instinctively kind of have a sense of what needs to go with what, you know. Sure. So when you sometimes actually, I get it wrong. When you actually learned to, to do this, it wasn't a, a study that you went through. You just kind of no, did it no. instinctively. Instinctively, you know, and I kind of know what I like to hear. That's the other thing with age, you too, you get a, when you're a little older and more experienced, you kind of know what you want, what you don't want, what you want to hear, what you don't want to hear, right? Yeah. And uh, so, uh, um, you know, I, I know what I like, you know, and I know, I definitely know where my sonic ear sits, right? I know exactly what kind of harmonies I'm drawn to. I have a very um, esoteric uh, harmonic ear, you know, I don't, I don't care for just plain majors and minors and triads and so forth. I, I'm more drawn to the, uh, dissonant part of the, part of the spectrum. Right. Sure. And, uh, so that's why I like trailers because trailers is all about using noise. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I love working with noise, you know? <clears throat> so, um, but anyway, long story short, that's, I think basically my, my, uh, my uh, education. That's why when you go to my LinkedIn page, you'll see, I just say university of life, because that's basically it. You know, it's just years and years of listening to stuff. And it's funny because today, you know, I listen to a lot of music. I, when I, when I, cause I get so many briefs every year, I, you know, like I said, I get hundreds of briefs and they, you know, all of them have references, uh, that you have, they want you to listen to. And, and I listen to that stuff and I'm like, oh yeah, I heard that. Right, 50 times before. I know that. I know, you know, sure. you know the riffs, you know, because there's, you know, that's just the way it is. But of course, if you're 20 years old, it's all fresh, right? Yeah. So that's a bit of the challenge for me is to keep that freshness going on something. Yeah. Just this goes to show the importance of, of listening, doesn't it? Of actually yeah. taking yeah. on board Thank what you're listening to as well. And that's the point. I think, you know, a lot of guys go, I, I see it all the time because I'm on some of these forums there for composers and stuff. And yeah. I, I noticed that, you know, a lot of guys are asking what, you know, what, what course should I take? And uh, <laughs> should I go for a master's? And should I, you know, what, what is the best university to go to, to teach me film music and this and this and that. And there are, there are definitely uh, advantages to having that. Um, but I think the most important thing you should be doing is, is listening. Yeah. Listening and being very varied, especially when you're younger, varied, omnivorous in what you're listening to, you know, uh, don't just, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I go to the gym four or five times a week and on my playlist at the gym is all new metal. You know, I listen to, <laughs> you know, uh, kill switch engage and, uh, you know, bands like that, you know, I mean, it's the opposite of what you'd think I would be, I wouldn't do that. I can't, you know, I'm, it's not that I can't, but it's just, I don't do that music, but I listen to it. And you know what? There's some, there's real technique in that, right? Yeah. So you've got to listen. Gives you a good workout as well. New metal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it drowns, it drowns out all the Euro pop that they're playing on the, <laughs> they're playing on the speakers, you know, which I can't, I can't stomach, but anyway, so, uh, that's the idea. But the point is it's, uh, I, th I would just say, you know, to any young, young guys, young composers, listen to as much as you can, you know, taste everything, yeah. you know, take it in and get familiar with it. Listen to Indian music. It's incredibly complex. Yeah. You know, Indian classical music has been around for thousands of years. You know, they have a, they have a system of music that is, 
that is absolutely incredible, you know, when you get into it. Listen to uh, Chinese music. I'm not talking like Chinese pop, but I'm talking <clears throat> classical Chinese, you know. Uh, there's so many cultures out there. And the more you have of that in, you know, that you've got sort of as a background, um, the more, um, I think, productive and creative you're going to be in whatever, uh, you know, whatever field uh, that you're going to be asked to work in. Yeah, definitely. I sat in on a uh, an Indian tabla masterclass once. Uh, and I, I think I learned more in that hour and a half than I learned over a year of studying other music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pe you know, people talk about ragas and, you know, but I, I found out because I, I, I was with, a, you know, a music teacher, Indian music teacher, and she explained to me that a raga is a scale mm -hmm. and they're all, they're all quarter tones, right? So, you know, we have 12 notes in our scale. Well, they have 24 yeah. and uh, they know all those scales. They memorize them and there's literally thousands. And if yeah. you are a, a musician there or, you know, a top musician or a teacher, you have to memorize all those scales. I mean, are you kidding me? It's, it's like, you know, you know. Okay, today we're going to play Raga five hundred and fifty-four, and then we're going to jump into Raga. You know, it's just it's mind-boggling. But in it, the precision and this in the rhythmic uh, precision that they have, yeah, it's incredible. Some of that stuff, you know, amazing. So, but we can learn from all that, right? So it opens up your door to new colors, new palettes, and I think that's the important thing. I think Definitely. for any composer nowadays. It's more important to learn about the music than it is about, okay, well, how do I break into the film music business and, you know, and so on. The other weakness, if, you, if I may mention this right now, if you're going to, since we're on this topic, the other weakness that I believe is that um, many, if not most, composers are piss poor at engineering. <laughs> they just never learned the craft, right? And I mean, I, you know, you feel... When I talk to others, you know, I end up fielding some of the most basic questions about recording. You know, uh, do I, what do I, do I, do I use sidechain compression here? How do I compress this and this and that? You know, how loud should I, I mean, these are just fundamentals, right? And I think, I think everybody who wants to do this for a living eventually needs to understand the tools he's working with. And since today, everything is pretty much in the box. Um, you need to understand what do these plugins do? Right? Yeah. Don't just don't just look at a preset and say, oh yeah, hot, hot preset. Let me put that one on. Bang. <laughs> you gotta understand why you're doing it, right? What's the compression for? When do you EQ? When do you not EQ? What kind of reverb do you use? When do you use reverb? What happens when you use too much reverb, etc.? There's a lot, a lot of uh, misinformation and also just a lot of not understanding it. Yeah. Uh, I think a know? lot of the modern systems as well, um, like Logic, for example, you open your EQ or your compressor and there's so many graphs and things to look at that show you visually how things are going. You end up mixing by eye rather than by ear. Right, right. That's a very good a good point. And because uh, I was just funny, there was just a discussion on one of the forums about you know, um, uh, reverb, you know, how should I use the reverb? How do I, how do I get everything to sit like it sounds like it's in the same space, right? Well, you know, nowadays music is not like it used to be. There was a time, yeah, where all the musicians recorded in the same space, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to go to Detroit and visit Motown, the old museum they have there. Uh, not yet, right? but I will. Yeah, yeah, well, there's a room there downstairs, right? And that's the room where they recorded all those great Motown hits. Everybody was in there, right? Yeah. I mean, and they would cram, you know, 20 people in there. 
with the tambourine also, right? <laughs> That's why the tambourine was so loud, right? <laughs> and they had, you know, one mic or sometimes two mics and everybody played in the same space and they did take after take until they got it right, you know? Yeah. Um, that nowadays is gone, right? Then we got into multi-track recording and, uh, you know, you went into that whole era where, you know, Toto and Steely Dan, where everything got completely separated, dry, isolated. We had what we call isolation booths, right? Yeah. And uh, then there was kind of a feel of getting things back together again. But today in, in, in the kind of music that I do, at least trailer, there is no, that's an artificial world, right? It's yeah. not a, it's not, it's not a natural world. That kind of music doesn't exist in the real world. So, and, and nobody cares because that's not the point of a trailer, right? Trailers to sell a film. So, you know, the big booms, the Brahms, the, all the stuff that goes into making trailers, um, all of that doesn't exist. In a, in a real setting. So you have to understand then using reverb, for example, um, it's not just about, okay, well, the graph tells me it needs to be here or the graph tells me it needs to be there. It's, it's more about, well, what are your ears telling you? Yeah. You know, when you're listening back on your system with your subwoofer, how does it sound? You yeah. know, does it sound big? Does it sound, I mean, is it is there something, you know, that's, and that's the thing, I think. I think using your ears is the most important thing. It's not about what reverb you're using, how many you're using, you know? Um, my system now I have, uh, you know, templates for everything, but my system is pretty simple. I have like, uh, uh, two, two, uh, go-to reverbs on everything. And then I have, uh, I run everything through Ozone 8, which is my main mastering mixing module. It's a brilliant, a brilliant thing and takes years to really understand it. Uh, I, I can't say I'm a master at it. But it is, you can fine tune anything, you know, it's on, right? Yeah. And that's it. I don't, you know, I don't have like 45 plugs on or a chain that goes from here to the, <laughs> here, here to the moon, you know, and try to make everything work together, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm less only looking more. for something that makes the music sound, yeah, less is more. And the, it makes the music sound as it should, right? Yeah. But that's where your, ear, your ears have to come in, you know, you're entirely right about that. Yeah, great. Johnny here, and I hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you want to learn the ins and outs of soundtrack composition, including the skills and equipment you'll need, as well as the entire process of creating music for the moving image, you can download my free ebook, The Media Scoring Guide, by visiting soundtrack.academy ebook. It's a 40-page, 10,000-word book outlining everything you need to know to get started. Visit soundtrack.academy ebook to get your copy for free today. Now let's get back to our guest. Moving on to um, more about how you come across projects as well. I know you pitch for a, an unbelievable amount of, of projects. Can you tell us how you, you come about finding those pitches, how you go about pitching, how you actually get the work? Well, the pitching for me is, I guess, I, what I mean by pitching is I work exclusively through a number of uh, publishers uh, and uh, and. Uh, agents. I guess they're kind of agents too, I suppose. Um, agencies. And um, I, I limit it that to a certain number that I find uh, extremely productive for me. Uh, I had the good fortune to, to, to get in with one of those companies early on when they were just starting up. And so I was one of the earliest composers and we kind of learned together. And they've been very, very productive for me. Uh, a lot of my work uh, comes through them. Great. And, and, uh, I work with, uh, one of the big, uh, one of the more, uh, 
what, well, I, I don't say prestigious because that's a stupid word, but I do like, <laughs> you know what I mean? What is a prestigious trailer company? But I, it's one of the one of the top trailer companies that I really enjoy working with because I enjoy the guy who runs it. I, I think he's a, a very fine musician and a decent human being. And, uh, and so basically he usually, they usually put together a, a few albums every year and they have some very specific requests that they want, uh, this, 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 and that. And then, you know, I will, uh, I will put together, like, for example, we just finished a bunch of sound effect albums and they, uh, wanted very specific things, uh, for those. And we did that, you know, so there was like 20 pieces that, of mine, of mine that went into each of those albums and the briefs. Well, I don't, it's not that I pitched directly to the company cause you can't. That's mm-hmm. the other point. It's almost impossible to get directly to the client. Um, if it's a commercial stuff, um, agencies rarely, at least in my experience, will not deal with a composer directly. Uh, there's a variety of reasons for that, as you can imagine. Composers can be extremely volatile, and, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, and I know, you know, we can start bouncing off the walls, and that's the last thing an agency wants, right? <laughs> especially when they have a, they have, especially when they have a big client that they're trying to keep happy. But uh, I basically deal with my uh, publisher. They get the uh, they get the request, and then they send out a brief. And of course, they usually send those briefs out to their composers. Um, sometimes it's a general brief. Sometimes it's a very specific brief. Sometimes it's custom work, which I get called in on. And um, I used to do a lot more. Like there used, I used to get about a brief a day. That's why I said about three hundred yeah. a year. I used to get about a brief a day, but it's kind of slowed down because I, I don't take, I kind of mini, uh, uh, minimize how many I, I, I pitch for, you know, I, I, I below a certain, uh, a certain amount of money, it's just too much work. You know, I, when I was first starting up, I was eager. I grabbed everything, you know, 500 bucks here, 400 bucks there. And it sounds good, but you know, the amount of work that goes into creating a, a piece for $500 is the same amount of work that goes into creating a piece for $5,000, Yeah, you know? So, you know, I kind of have this uh, limit where I sort of say, okay, if it's not really worth my while, I'm not going to put the work into it. Or if it's not really my wheel well, you know, if it's not really something, I mean, I can fake a lot of stuff, but it, it, if it's not really something that I enjoy doing, or if it's not something I, I like to do, um, or that I'm good at, then I just won't touch it. But then, you know, you get these weird things. Like I had one couple of years back, I got up one Sunday morning and there was the brief sitting in my, uh, in my inbox. I read it through. They wanted a rock piece with a nice little build and uh, kind of a bright sort of upbeat melody, right? So I said, oh, hey, you know, I got a few minutes. I can do that. I had to head out at 10 o'clock. So it was about seven in the morning. I get it pretty early. So I said, okay, I'll knock this out. So I knocked out this piece. It was like a, what, a minute and a half, you know, two guitars, a bass, drum thing, drums, and uh, this nice melody. And I threw it in. And that thing paid me <laughs> like so much money. It was crazy because it, <laughs> it, it, it went on a national commercial. Oh, wow. So there, there was a great upfront fee. And then there were the residuals, which were for like another year and a half later, paid great residuals, more actually than the upfront fee, you know? Wow. And that was just something, you know, I said, no, let me, let me take a crack at that. 
<laughs> and then there's other times I'll sit there and I'll labor on something for like a couple of days, uh, you know, and really put a lot of sweat, blood, sweat, and tears into it and, and goes nowhere. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so and that's the, just the nature of how this thing, uh, works, you know, I, and it, by and large, you never have more than that. I mean, I would say you never have more than a couple of, a couple of days. Uh, that's tops. Like, yeah. uh, you know, if they give you two days, that's a pretty good window. A lot of times it's like, this is due tomorrow at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time or, you know, 12 yeah, a.m., yeah. 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I'm like, okay, oh, holy smoke, that gives me like eight hours or something, <laughs> you yeah. know. What, what do you do with the tracks that, um, that aren't successful? So I uh, keep everything, right? So you never throw anything out, right? It's like, because uh, those are your tools, right? Yeah. So, um, and this is why I say you can only, to some degree, uh, production music is a numbers game, right? It's uh, about having a lot of product floating around. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, they're, they're, you know, it's impossible for anybody to create excellent top-notch product uh you know 300 times a year you know it's just there's no you know there are people i know they claim that they write 100 songs a month or whatever <laughs> or 100 pieces a month and i'm like okay whatever i i feel i feel that i'm fairly uh i'm fairly um proficient and um you know i can turn out a lot of churn out a lot of stuff but <clears throat> there's a limit right yeah i find that when i uh, force something or I fake it, it never works. You know, it's gotta, it's gotta, it's gotta be real. There has to be some authenticity to it, right? Yeah. And so, and so uh um basically the tracks that I that don't get taken, I keep them. So I have a list of tracks that I haven't uh used, and I will use some of those with other libraries. So for example, I started working about uh, two years ago with another uh uh, with another uh, publishing house out, outside of New York. And they uh, pitched to a lot of um, reality TV shows. And, you know, and reality TV shows just gobble up music. It's nonstop, right? Yeah. And, and, and so it happened to be that I have a lot of music, which is kind of rock, rock, swampy rock, bluesy based, because that's what I like to do. So I had a pile of tracks like that. And I just, you know, reworked them. And they took them. Oh, great. And we're yeah, and we're happy to have them, right? Uh, but that's all like residual work. Yeah. Like you don't yeah. get any, you get no upfront money for that. So that's money where you're sitting, okay, that's, that's going into the bank. And then you look at, you know, hopefully a year later or a year and a half later, some residuals start coming in from that placement, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, yeah, I would never, I, and I reuse, I reuse and I rework. Uh, stuff because there's always good ideas in whatever you do. You know, I, when I do something, even if it was, even if I didn't make it just because the time limits didn't allow me to give it what it needed, um, there's always some good ideas in there. Yeah. Right? yeah. So why, why would I, why would I toss those ideas out? And so I can, I can definitely reuse the raw material as it were and uh, rebuild right yeah. from it. Yeah. It's often a lot faster to do that than it is to try and come up with something from scratch, yeah. you know? And since I mentioned, you know, most of these briefs are so short, speed is what it's all about. Yeah. You know, speed and hitting the deadline, yeah. you know? Do you, would you advise new composers to take the approach that you took initially in terms of 
just pitch for everything they can or take the approach that you've developed now, which is be a bit more selective, choose the ones that pay a bit more or the ones within their own specialism? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that a lot of, first thing a person needs to realize about himself is what is he good at and what is he not good at? Now, that doesn't mean you can't learn any everything. I mean, we can all learn something. My my personal feeling has always been if a, if another human can do it, I could learn it. <laughs> um, you know? Yeah. But that, you know, I mean, if you're a uh, if you're a quantum physicist, yeah, could I learn quantum physics? Probably, but would <laughs> I be would I be good at it and how how many decades would it take me to even grasp the the beginnings of it, right? Yeah. So I think, I think as, as any, like in anything else, you, we all have specific talents and specific abilities and uh, creative, creative bents. And we have to need, we have to sort of learn to understand what those are. And that's why, that's the one advantage of having been, having done this for a long time. You know, at this point in my life, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. And I'm pretty clear about that. Sometimes I venture into something I'm not good at and I always burn myself on it, you know? And I said, oh yeah, this is easy, I'll do that. I'll give you a small example. Not too long ago, well, not too long ago, a couple of years ago, actually, there was a real demand for sort of this uh, Frank Sinatra, Michael Buble style covers, right? Yeah. And I'm I'm listening to that stuff and I like that. I think it's brilliant and I thought, and I kind of always poo-pooed Michael Bublé. I thought, nah, you know what? I mean, that's easy. Anybody can sing like that. And I'm like, well, let me give it, let me give a, take a shot at that. So I did a couple of covers of some songs and did some arrangements and everything. Then I thought, well, I'll sing on that, right? And let me tell you something. I totally bombed. Like, it is so <laughs> difficult to sing like that. I realized there is a huge craft just in the way, I mean, the way Frank Sinatra came in and his phrasing and so on. It just... It's unbelievable. You know, he was instinctively, uh, even though he was also quite a versed musician, apparently, but he was instinctively uh, right about the way he approached his singing. And it's not something you can just pick up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Takes a lot of effort to sound effortless. Yeah, exactly. So I I think to some degree, uh, if I were a young composer, yeah, I would probably pitch for just about everything in sight. Um, Other than stuff that would demean me, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go into things that would demean me. And, and I think that, uh, if you, the more you pitch, the more you try different things, the more you start to realize, oh, you know what? I'm actually pretty good at this, but I'm not so good at that, you know? So that, you know, maybe I'll, I'll focus my energies more on this. And you start to start, you start to realize where your creative skill sets are, not your musical skill sets, not about chords and, you know, and rhythm and so on, but it's about where you creatively click the qu- the, 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 the quickest, you know, where you're yeah. the best, right? Yeah. And we all have that, right? There's certain areas that really resonate with us. And those are the ones you want to highlight. And those are the ones you want to invest in. Because, you know, the only way that you're going to differ- differentiate yourself right now from that mass, mass of people who are attempting to get into production music and especially film music too, is by dif- differentiating yourself. And the only way you can do that is by understanding what your personal skill, you know, personal gifts are, personal skills are. And you're not going to find those out by going to school. 
right? No. You're only going to find those out by trying and seeing. Yeah. When, where you fall flat on your face, okay, no good. Or maybe I could learn more here. Maybe it's just you just missed something. That's also possible. Yeah. But you got to tr- do all those that trial and error, you know? So, I mean, I did that too when I first got into synchronization. I mean, that's like, as I mentioned, about 10, 12 years ago, I had a lot of failures, you know? I mean, I still do. I mean, not everything, most of what I pitch never gets taken. Mm-hmm. But uh, the failure rate is a lot less than it was, right? Uh, I had to learn so much about production, about how it should sound, um, you know, making sure that what I do sounds as good as what else, with everything else, with everything else that's out there, um, you know, and that takes time. There's just no way you can get around that. So yes, I would encourage young people, young young, uh, composers to go out and pitch as much as they can at that point, in, you know, at this point in time. But later on, then you want to become a little bit more discretionary and uh, maybe pick and choose where you think you're going to have the most success. You sure, know? sure. Can you take us a little bit through your um, your actual process when you know when you see the brief? What's the first thing you do, and what steps do you go through to get to the end product? First thing I do is I listen to the reference. I know <laughs> there's a, there, there's a huge there's a huge um, controversy going on and a lot of composers, this is more in the film world than there is, but even so in the video world is this issue of temp music yeah. and every, how people hate temp music and so on. And I don't agree with that. I think, I think I'd rather have a track that I can listen to because it speaks to me musically, then have somebody try to explain to me, uh, well, we want a piece that starts off slow <laughs> and then has a build and maybe add a little bit of tinkling on top and then is inspiring, but not too inspiring. And we want it to end with a huge, a huge crash, but not too, uh, too intense. You know, it's like, and you get like stuff like that oftentimes, right? Yeah. You know, and with time, I've actually gotten used to to those because, and I call them fishing expeditions because basically, <laughs> basically the person doesn't know what he wants. Yeah, yeah. So then what you end up doing is you end up giving him material so he knows what he doesn't want. Yeah. If you understand, right? And, you know, I'm tired of doing that because, you know, we create all the, you create these pieces of music and they keep saying, no, 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 no. But now you get, they're getting a clearer picture of what they really want, right? Yeah. So um, I, first thing I'll do is I'll, or I'll read the brief over, and some, like I said, are more, are more um, uh, comprehensive, more detailed than others. Many are not, because they're not written by musical people, right? Yeah. And uh, they, uh, but if they have references there, this is what we're thinking about, or this is what we've been cutting the video to, or this is kind of the idea we're. And generally, they're derivative, right? Because that's how how this industry works. It's not just this industry, it's how humans work, right? Mm-hmm. We, we bite off each other all the time, right? That's always been the nature of creativity. And so, you know, for a while there, it was, you know, after what was that movie there with uh, uh, Keaton, Michael Keaton, Birdman, right? Oh yeah. It, it was the drum tracks. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody wanted the drum truck. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I probably got a hundred references, you know, referring to that movie, you know, uh, and then it's then it's the next thing, and it's the next thing, right? Okay, but at least I understand then what the person is kind of hearing and what they want, right? Because as a as a as a as a media composer, that's your job. Your job is to give the client what he wants. It's not to make an artistic statement, you know. It's not about me, MCR, but it's about 
uh, it's about giving the client what he wants. So he can in turn please his client. Yeah. Because that's how it works, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's clients and clients, right? Like my publisher goes to the agency, goes to the client's agency, then to the client. So there's like maybe three, four layers between you and the final person. Yeah. Right? So your job is to try to discern as best as you can or nail as best as you can what it is you think that person wants. And so there's a lot of psychology involved in doing that. And so for me, a reference track, great. I have a reference track. I love it. What I really hate is when I get 15 reference tracks (laughs) and they're all over the map. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, everything from, you know, from alt rock uh, to hillbilly to metal and they're all, it's all mixed in together. (laughs) And you're like, okay, well, what are you really looking for here? You know, um, but generally I I listen to the reference tracks and then I, I decide, is this something I can do a good job on or not? Right. So, you know, if it's something Euro pop-ish or whatever, I usually pass because it's not my, it's not my thing. Um, and, uh, so, but if it's something I, 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 I comes up and I say, yeah, yeah, this one definitely I can take a shot at. And then, you know, next step will be, of course, uh, once I have that, uh, I listen to the track a few times, but not too many times because you don't want to imitate it, right? Mm-hmm. Too closely. It's, it's very important. But you want to catch the spirit and the feel of what you think the client is looking for in that track, right? Is it the twangy guitars they like? Uh, is it the drum beat they like? You know, it's, it's usually pretty fundamental stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I'll put a track together and then I'll compare my track with what they have as the reference and see, am I, st- am I still in the same universe, you know? Yeah. And uh, you got to do that pretty quickly because like I said, oftentimes it's a five, six hour turnaround, right? Yeah. And then you uh, send it off and then you wait, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the inevitable waiting game, right? Yeah. When mixing, do you keep the reference track open as well and mix to the reference track or do you just do by ear? (laughs) No, I do by ear. At this stage in the game, I kind of know. Most of the reference tracks you get anyway are MP3s or YouTube sure. videos. You can't mix to those. I mean, they are so, so badly compressed. And they <laughs> yeah. sound so bad that, you know, you wouldn't want to mix to that, no. right? <laughs> no, I get, I, I think generally, I mean, here, I mean, again, it depends, right? So sometimes they want a vintage feel. You get that quite a lot. You know, we're looking for a vintage feel. Well, what do they mean by a vintage feel? Do they mean... 1970, 1960, 1980. I mean, what are they looking for? Hissing right? noises. <laughs> Hissing noises. Yeah. Do they want vinyl noise? You know? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's it's stuff like that. Or do they like it when the drum is in one side of the uh, <laughs> on the left on the left side and the bass on the right side and the vocal in the middle kind of thing? You know. So you know that's another thing that's kind of hard. So some you know a lot of times you're kind of shooting in the dark and trying to understand what it is they're looking for. Which is why, ergo, a, a, um, a reference track is good. Yeah. You know, so if somebody sends me a reference track of, you know, Eric Clapton, White Room. Oh, okay. I know what you mean by vintage here. You know, you want that mm-hmm. late, early 70s rock, blues rock thing, right? Going on with the, you know, the guitars panned left and right, because that's all they had in those days was two track. Yeah. And, you know, the dry drums, because, and, you know, and that kind of uh, springy reverb, cause, right? Yeah. So, you know, and then you learn to be able to imitate that stuff and do it, right? And give your track that feel, you know? Sure, sure. Okay, one final question. What would be your one piece of advice for someone getting started in either trailer music or 
um, commercial music? Oh, wow. One piece of advice. I mean... <laughs> Amongst gotta, all, of, all the hundreds of pieces of advice uh, you've given throughout our, <laughs> our talk. Uh, you know what? I'm just talking off the top of my head. So, I mean, it's... Uh, and I appreciate you, appreciate you giving me this uh, forum to express oh. myself. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, one piece of advice I'd say is you, be, you, you should be in this for the love and mm. not for the money. Because uh, it'd be great to make a living at this, and that's the goal that everybody wants to have to be able to. But don't look up, look down. You know, we always have this tendency to look up to Hans Zimmer's and the uh, James Newton Howards and so on, who are up there, and you know, and you're like, oh yeah, I would. That's I can do that, or I want to be like that, or you know, in the trailer world. There's a number of names too that people look to, but uh, the reality is what you know. You don't know the you don't know the trajectory that these people had to get there, and I can guarantee you it wasn't an overnight trajectory. Mm-hmm. It was something that took a long time. And not only that, there's also a, a historical element to all of this, right? I mean, there's a lot of being in the right place at the right time in the right era. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, there's a reason why Danny Elfman ended up becoming a great film composer, right? Yeah, because he was just one of the first. You know, <laughs> and he and he ended up being good friends with Burton, Tim Burton, and Tim Burton went on to make some great movies and brought his pal Danny along. You yeah. know, and it's just that's not something you can go to school for. No. You know, so stop looking up, look down, look at your work, look at your craft, make sure that what you're doing is up to snuff to what to everything else that's out there. If you want to work in trailers, you got to make sure that your trailers sound like the best trailers out there. And I don't mean by that, I don't mean just epic because uh, I think I think right now there's a bit of a seismic shift going on anyway in the trailer world. Uh, I'm yeah. personally involved in that myself. I'm definitely working on what I believe should be the next move. But uh, right. the, uh, you know, but uh, I would just say work on your craft. Make sure that you are, your production values are as good as they, as good as what's out there, what's being published. You know, don't send in crappy material. I mean, I can I can't believe sometimes how many guys post on forums, you know, I have a track here. It's not quite finished. I know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the guitars are not really lined up. What do you guys think about it? And then I'm they like, finish with enjoy. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, why are you even posting this? Like, first of all, I would not in a million years post anything unless I was 150% sure it was finished and I was proud of it, you know? Um, and firstly, and secondly, I mean, if you already know, that there's things wrong with your piece of music. Well, what is everybody else going to think, right? So it's different saying, can I get some help on a piece of music? Well, that's another story, you know? And, uh, you know, I'm probably sincerely, a lot of people are asking that when they look for that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the reality is make sure, see, nowadays it's, 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 um, you have the capability of comparing, right? There's just listen, learn, train your ears, right? Train your ears to see what's going on, why this is good and why that's not good, you know? And courses are not necessarily going to teach you that. I'm not saying courses are bad. There's many good courses out there. Um, And I'm certainly not going to speak against those who are providing those courses. Anyway, but uh, my point is, yeah. So I, I would just say, you know, biggest piece of advice is work on yourself. Don't look up, look down. Look at what you're doing. Learn, learn your craft, you know, as best as you can. And when you feel you're ready, then yeah, put it out there and then see what your peers say, you know, um, get, get an honest feedback. You're not going to get honest feedback on Facebook or on, or very rarely 
on Facebook or on things like YouTube or things like that. You know, it's, it's you know, 50, 50 likes and 50 dislikes doesn't tell you anything. It's, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. But uh, share it with somebody who you trust, who's, a, who's very, you know, try and get a, a, few, a mentor, somebody who's willing to listen to your stuff, go through it and say, okay, you know what? This is a great piece of music, but here it, here it lags. You know, I would have done this differently here, and here's why. Uh, the production could be a bit better. You need to improve. Uh, maybe need some compression here or something just to to uh, to make this a little bit less. Uh, you know, not, uh, how would I say, squeeze sounding right, mm-hmm. or ease up on the compression, so on and so forth. And uh, and just keep working on your craft, getting better at it. It's not something you're ever going to perfect. None of us do, right? We work on it every day, and. That's the beauty of this. It's it's not so much a, uh, it's not something where you ever can sit back and say, "That's it, I've arrived, I'm it." You know, you know. I'm sure even Hans Zimmer sits there and agonizes over things sometimes, or at least his guys agonize over it. Uh, you know, and he's probably thinking yeah. to himself right now, "Well, what's the next the next uh, thing going to be? Where am I going to work on next, and how am I going to manage it?" Right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, or maybe not. I don't know. You know, <laughs> just imagine. <laughs> I'm just imagining here. But that's what that would be my biggest piece of advice. Work on yourself, invest in yourself. Don't don't try to aspire for something. Um, you know, in in the next 10, 15 years, the whole scene is going to change again. And it's changing as we speak, right? Yeah. But that would be if you know, if I had to say anything, that would be my uh my my advice. Work on yourself. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for taking part again, Michael. There's, there's some really great information in there. Hey Johnny, thank you so much. I hope you edit out all the dross and the uh, <laughs> all of the uh, f- the fluff, you know. But uh, I p- appreciate very much you giving me a hearing ear. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Michael. All the all the best in your podcast. Take care. Thanks you too. I hope that you learned plenty from that episode. Don't forget to grab your free copy of my ebook, The Media Scoring Guide, by visiting soundtrack.academy/ebook. In the book, I take you through all of the skills and equipment you'll need to be a media composer, as well as explaining the entire process of scoring a media music project. Once again, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite platform, and we'll see you in next week's episode. Thanks for listening, and wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a creative day.